0: "Hello, and welcome. My name is Andrew Gilbert, and I live and work in Toronto and in Mississauga, both of which lie on the traditional land of the Huron Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today this meeting place is still the home to many indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and I am grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. So maybe you're like me. At some point, you embark upon a research project following a curiosity fueled by a set of contingent, idiosyncratic, and biographical circumstances. And eventually, you find yourself looking for intellectual community, because not that many anthropologists have centered their work around the same keywords or research objects that you have. For me, that research object was international intervention. My curiosity had taken me to Bosnia and Herzegovina in the aftermath of the 1990s war. I wanted to understand the social and political effects of the intervention encounter between Bosnians and the diverse agents of intervention, working as part of various efforts of peacekeeping, state-building, humanitarianism, democratization, and so on. I was fortunate to be part of a small group of anthropologists and other researchers working in the states and societies carved out of the breakup of Yugoslavia, and many of us were interested in the manifold effects of these diverse intervention encounters and processes. But it was unclear to me at the time whether these interests were shared by anthropologists outside of the region, whether international intervention was a keyword that others would identify their own work with. At the time, this seemed to be a problem, because I wanted my work to be recognizable and interesting to anthropologists outside of southeastern Europe. But it also presented an opportunity, because maybe I could help create a new kind of visibility within the discipline. And so, I did what we do when we want intellectual community. I worked to make space for it at academic meetings and workshops with titles like Towards an Anthropology of International Intervention. Now at some point over the last few years, I don't know exactly when it started, but that turn of phrase started sticking out to me. An anthropology of. Every time I read it in the titles or texts of journals and books, I would pause and ask, What does that mean, to do an anthropology of something? It seemed an overly grand and sweeping assertion because, in some ways, it was unnecessary. Isn't this what all anthropologists do? Anthropologies of things? Yet I, too, had used this turn of phrase. So why and when do we propose an anthropology of something, or make claims to it? What do anthropologists... What did I seek to accomplish by using that phrase. There is no shortage of examples. A simple search in various databases of anthropology journals reveals propositions for anthropologies of a vast range of things, such as labor, old age, parking, viral hemorrhagic fevers, hate speech, interior dialogue, immunology, and my personal favorite, undesired buildings. Is there anything common across all of these propositions or claims? Or is this turn-of-phrase simply a useful way to distinguish ourselves in a competitive academic market and add intellectual heft to our scholarly endeavors? One way to answer these questions would be to read the articles and books that make these claims to an anthropology of something. But a better way, it seemed to me, would be to ask the anthropologists writing them. But I had some nagging doubts. Maybe I was alone in my curiosity. Would others who use this turn of phrase find an inquiry into it, and to their own use of it, worth talking about? As it happens, I need not have worried, at least on this last question. It turns out that anthropologists, or at least some of them, were game to help me think through this turn of phrase within the discipline. At this point, I should let those that responded to my invitation introduce themselves, and the articles that grounded each of our conversations.
1: My name is Akhil Gupta. I am the president of the American Anthropological Association, but I'm also a professor at UCLA. I have a joint appointment at the University of Melbourne in Australia, and I am the director of the Center for India and South Asia at UCLA. The article that I'll be talking about today is called An Anthropology of Electricity from the Global South. My name is Trudy Lynn Smith. I'm an artist and adjunct
2: assistant professor at the University of Victoria on the traditional territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples.
3: My name is Kate Hennessy. I'm an associate professor specializing in media at Simon Fraser University's School of Interactive Arts and Technology on the unceded ancestral territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. The title of our article is An archival materiality in film archives toward an anthropology of the multimodal.
4: My name is Alina Kim. I teach at the University of California, Irvine. And the article is Toward an Anthropology of Landmines, Rogue Infrastructure and Military Waste in the Korean Demilitarized Zone.
5: Hi, I'm Carol McGranahan. I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of Colorado and the author of An Anthropology of Lying, Trump and the Political Sociality of Moral Outrage.
6: My name's Nick Seaver. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at Tufts University, and I wrote an article titled, What Should an Anthropology of Algorithms Do?
7: My name is Tobias Rees, I'm a Reid Hoffman professor of humanities at the New School of Social Research at Parsons School of Design in New York. And I'm director at the Berggruen Institute, a private or non-profit research institute in Los Angeles.
0: By the way, the title of his article is Humanity Plan, or On the Stateless Today also being an anthropology of global health. My conversations with these authors took place over the course of about three weeks in October of 2020. They were wide-ranging and expansive, and taken together, they offered fascinating and provocative views about anthropological practice at this historical moment. Indeed, one of the things that becomes clear once you start to explore the deployment of this phrase is that to look into propositions for an anthropology of something is to encounter some of the edges and horizons of the discipline. So, I hope you'll stay with me for this podcast, as we put this common-sense phrase under scrutiny, and see what it can reveal about anthropology today. So, where to begin? My reading of a number of articles that propose or make claims about an anthropology of something show that more or less all are involved in making their research object legible and available for anthropological analysis. This is particularly the case when it is something like algorithms, electricity, or landmines, about which little has been written. And so, to a greater or lesser degree, most articles do a number of similar things. They describe the object of analysis as an empirical and discursive phenomenon. They describe its effects— they historicize it and locate it in a field of comparison. They describe the social relations and political fields it generates and which give it life. They engage with the concepts and categories of others and offer a few themselves. And they point to directions for future research. But in asking why they propose an anthropology of something, or what it means to do so, I encountered distinct stakes and aims. These are probably best understood in the words of the authors themselves. Take Carol McGranahan. Remember, she wrote about An Anthropology of Lying, published in early 2017. The origin of that article was not in fieldwork, but in American politics. In mid-December 2016, and thus the wake of Donald Trump's election as President of the United States, she got a call asking if she would like to contribute an essay on anything having to do with the election. Trump's lying seemed ripe for analysis. There were, however, very specific goals she had when she proposed an anthropology of lying.
5: I knew that what I wanted to write was not not a correction to the lies. So I felt that, right, an anthropology of lying wasn't about saying what truth was. It wasn't saying, "Oh, here are all the things that um, Trump has said that are lies, right, and saying, here's what actually happened. But instead getting into, I think as I call it in the beginning of the article, the, the work of lies, right, the cultural, historical, political work you do, which in some ways, you're talking here about the creation of categories. For me, then that would lead to the creation of, of communities and then practices of belonging, right, which is really what I was, I think, trying to get at here, And again, hadn't necessarily been thinking this way until I sat down to do the analysis, was that these lies were working in the world to create communities that people felt emboldened to belong to. And then, you know, these were ideas and concepts upon which they could act, including in violent ways. So I guess that's sort of the specifics, um, you know, of this particular anthropology of lying so one of the first things I did, you know, will not surprise you, was I went to Google Scholar and typed in anthropology of lying, right, (laughs) to see what, okay, what exists? What does the literature look like? What's out there? And I was sort of surprised that there was really very little. Um, That caught me off guard. I actually thought that there was going to be more written about um, lying as a you know, cultural practice or cultural category, and there wasn't. So that was one thing that was immediately apparent to me, that there wasn't really an anthropology of lying. And I guess the second part beyond just reviewing what had been done in anthropology and sort of trying to mark this in a new way as something worthy of our collective attention within the discipline was also saying to the outside world, anthropology has something to say here about lies. You know, Trump's lies both in 2016 and right now in 2020 take up a lot of airtime um, in terms of him literally you know, expressing lies and tweeting lies, but also people discussing them, refuting them and thinking about them. And so that conversation was already happening, and I thought it was one in which, you know, anthropologists had something to
0: contribute. So, although the origins of her article were not in field work, her proposal of an anthropology of lying did come out of the attempt to account for and explain something in relationship to the theoretical concepts in existing scholarship and in finding a lacuna there. In part, this led her to generate two concepts, affiliative truth and aspirational lies to explain the effects of Trump's lying. It was a similar process of discovery and surprise for Alina Kim when she encountered something in fieldwork, the unexpected ways that people lived with landmines, and found she had to theorize it outside of the available paradigms.
4: When I was doing my fieldwork, which was focused on the ecologies of the Korean Demilitarized Zone from the South Korean side. what struck me was that in all of my forays through this area you would see landmine signs one knew that this is one of the most heavily mined areas in the world and yet at least when i was doing sort of more ecological field work people didn't talk about it you know like and in retrospect i remember going into these fields and <laughs> wading through streams. And, and then it would come up, but almost like a joke. Like, oh, I hope there are no landmines here. Or, you know, and, it, and then it, that would sometimes lead to stories about people they knew who had been injured by mines or had been exposed to them. But the kind of uh, sense of immediate bodily risk was not there. And so then when I first heard the stories that I write about in the essay... I almost didn't hear them. And so it really, you know, and this is what happens with fieldwork. It's like, you go back to the transcripts or you go back and re-listen to things. And then suddenly they just popped. And I was like, wow, I couldn't really grasp that this person was talking about minds as something that he overcame, you know, that was like, that was so central to his personhood. It wasn't just, of course, you knew the stories about the victims, you know, and how horrible and heinous Landmines are you know, anti-humanitarian, but uh, the lived experience of moving through these spaces was very flat. And then his narrative was kind of like neither of those things.
0: And so she went to the literature to explore the available ways to think about this narrative. And what was prominent then, writings on ruins and ruination, or the tragic effects of military waste, did not explain, as she put it, the liveliness of the stories she'd heard. This led her to theorize landmines as a kind of rogue infrastructure to capture the volatility of mines and their multiple entanglements with the humans who exist alongside them.
4: I mean, to get back to your original question, I think the anthropology of here really uh, was a response to not seeing a way to approach this question that came, that emerged ethnographically about what is this relationship between humans and minds in these ecologies in the existing literature because it was kind of overwhelmingly sort of tilted towards a kind of always already humanitarian response to the victimology of, you know, minds. I was um, looking for a different way to account for that theoretically. So if it's an anthropology of, I think that it has to be about asking, you know, how the categories that we carry around with us prevent us from seeing what's right in front of us and prevent us from seeing, you know, whatever political possibilities might exist, even in the most mundane and marginal places.
0: Tobias Race offers a similar origin story for his Anthropology of Global Health. In this case, fieldwork insights required him to rethink the very figure of the human around which anthropology has traditionally been defined.
7: I was doing fieldwork at the Gates Foundation and at the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle. And I could tell from the conversations that something new was happening, a new configuration was emerging, global health. So the distinction was international health and global health. And the idea was international health divides humanity into a family of nations, where every nation has a government, a territory, and the government's responsible for all the diseases of this population, everywhere in the world except in in the United States. Um, And for Gates and Chris Murray, that didn't work. They thought that, you know, that's just like this model of a state in most countries doesn't work. So they divided humanity into disease-specific populations rather than national populations the disease-specific populations kind of run diagonal to national boundaries. And wow, now the state seems to be totally unreliable because, you know, like it stops at its borders. And so they decided to build a new humanity infrastructure. Then I made a discovery that was complicated for me. The concept of the human that is implicit in international health and the concept of the human implicit in global health are basically mutually exclusive, One is like society, the social, the nation-state, and disease is a social problem. And the other one is a global humanity. Whether you belong to a nation or not doesn't define your status as human. It's much more humans as biological things among biological things than humans as social things set apart from biology. So now you're in a real problem because that means does social theory apply? Because social theory is contingent on a concept of the human that is actually really different from, let's call it, global health or a networked humanity, and then you recognize, wow! And, and, and anthropology is like the study of little nations, of little societies imagined as a nation. Historically, we're as a field completely complicit with a certain concept of the human and of humanity that has not always existed, that is not obvious. Why would we? pledge allegiance to this. And so uh, the the anthropology of was in that paper a double effort to show the emergence of a new configuration and to ask the question, is this an event on on the, let's call it epistemic or ontological level of the human in such a way that the human on which anthropology was built doesn't matter, so to speak, to this formation, or more like is a, uh, is an echo from the past. And then the study of global health is a, a kind of laboratory in which anthropology as a field, the concepts of anthropology, the methods of anthropology, cannot predate the analysis. I became really interested in how we can rid anthropology of the concept of the human to which it is indebted, and allow for new work.
0: For Trudy Lynn Smith and Kate Hennessy, it was an unexpected encounter in the archives of the Field Museum in Chicago in 2013 that set them on the long path to their proposition for an anthropology of the multimodal, centered around what they call an archival materiality. We first hear from Trudy, then Kate
2: we were going through a series of flat files that had some drawings in them. And one of the drawings was a pretty large paperwork that was a pastel, probably an oil pastel drawing that filled the entire frame. And we both were suddenly enraptured because we noticed this print on the other side, the sort of manila folder that was holding the drawing that was uh, what is called paper burn to archivists. And so it was this beautiful um, print that the print had made over the course of a hundred years and um, and we were taken by this and the idea that the archive itself was making things all the time, that it wasn't just that we were storing things in archives as humans, the modernist project of going in and and sending things into the archives that then live there forevermore in this sort of um, stopped time, but that actually things were always alive in the archives and always changing.
3: And when you say, Trudy, you know, we started using words like uncooperative, rebellious, unruly objects, you know, working against the will of the the conservators and the curators and, you know, doing these unexpected things um, on their own and really, you know, causing trouble to the archivist. And um, that inspired us to think about... You know, all of the other ways that potentially we could work with this idea in archives and what that would mean for, you know, the materials within archives and their, you know, like Trudy was saying, their sort of lively action, Um, what that would mean for the way archivists did their work and also how people would come to know or understand things in archives differently over time because of their material transformations. Um, and that was exciting to us because um, it felt like a real moment of uh, kind of unsettling or a, a rupture and, um, you know, drew us to thinking about the ways that the structure and what it intended to do in terms of being a memory institution or a preservation institution um, could not actually contain the the, the liveliness of those objects and that made us think in a lot of different directions um, in term, especially in terms of you know, ideas of authority and power and colonialism um, and, and so that is what led us then to our work with the, the British Columbia Provincial Archives in Victoria. Um, I'm in Vancouver on you know, unseated ancestral, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Territory, um, and there's a big set of you know, obligations as a settler-scholar that I have here in thinking about uh, preservation in museums and um, the, the legacy of colonial collecting and genocidal colonial policies on this territory.
0: Okay, thus far we have heard familiar stories of surprise and discovery. But they act as great reminders of the excitement and creativity of research and writing. Like Trudy and Kate's article, Nick Seaver's essay on the anthropology of algorithms was less about proposing something new than it was an intervention into an ongoing discussion. However, like many of the other articles, it was concerned with making its object, algorithms, available for anthropological analysis. In his case, however, It was about redefining how and why one might do that.
6: Outside of anthropology, I think the stakes of an anthropological approach to algorithms, in particular, there's a there's a very specific problem uh, that I was writing against uh, in this moment, and that I feel like I've been writing against over and over, which is this vision of algorithms as inhuman. You know, it's just math, it's automation, it's a technical system that has no people in it. I think the problem with that approach is that it doesn't understand this lesson uh, that we know from anthropology of technology and also uh, from STS, uh, which is that most technologies we talk about are best understood as, as socio-technical systems, right? There are human hands in there changing things all the time. So the stakes here uh, are... Correctly diagnosing the problem. And I think you get a kind of reactionary humanism out of a lot of anthropologists when you talk about algorithmic stuff, right? This argument that algorithms are coming to destroy human nature. They're going to, you know, mess up all of the things that are great about humans. And I think a lot of those arguments are premised on uh, an unsupportable vision of what an algorithm is. I think that they don't recognize uh, that what we're dealing with here are social structures and social dynamics. And once you do that, once you start to say, hey, it matters that there are people in these systems, then you start to see uh, critiques like you see uh, now, even more in popular media, like, oh, maybe those people in those systems, maybe it matters then that those people are extremely homogeneous in terms of their background, right? That they share a set of ideas about the way the world works. And that, diversifying those groups or intervening on how those human elements are sort of brought into the system, uh, that that might be a spot for, for critical intervention. That might be a way to fix actually some of these problems or to address some of these harms. What I find useful about the idea of doing an anthropology of something is that as anthropologists, we have a kind of freedom. We ourselves have a kind of uh, liberty to move uh, across frames of reference, to draw things together that aren't drawn together by other people. Uh, And that, to my mind, is uh, worth preserving. It's part of the sort of anthropological mission that's uh, super useful. And I think that ability to take what we find in the world a little bit more literally and a little bit more figuratively than the people involved take it. I think that's actually a useful thing uh, for us to do. And uh, the reason I say that and why that's a little bit abstract is because I'm very concerned with the possibility that doing an anthropology of something means bringing a kind of uh, sedimented, old, not bad because it's old, um, but bad in particular ways, uh, you know, colonialist, racist, sexist, all of these things. I don't think that it's a useful thing for us to bring those kinds of analytics um, forward. But what I find useful from the anthropological tradition is this commitment to comparison uh, and this commitment to bringing apparently disparate things together.
0: So one of the stakes in proposing an anthropology of something is deciding what it, anthropology, is, and what to bring forward from it and what not to. It seems to me that this comes in part from the freedom in that dialectical relationship between field work and conceptual work. We are often asked to answer two basic questions in our research. What does anthropology bring to the study of something like algorithms, but also, what can the study of algorithms bring to anthropology? This encourages us to see the discipline as something malleable, as something that our research might play a role in redefining or reshaping in some small way. This might be the reason behind another feature of so many propositions for an anthropology of. That is, the way they highlight and foreground the qualities of newness, novelty, and originality. Of course, when I put this to Carol McGranahan, she suggested that there are other ways and reasons to draw attention to something, beyond the question of whether your analysis offers a new research object or novel theorization. It may be to extend an invitation to others.
5: Good ethnography, an analysis that you know makes you sit up, and and you want to think with. You know that's. Um you know, those get people excited, not just writing about something that no one's written about before. That could be boring and flat and, you know, not necessarily valuable. Um, And yet, I like to think of it more when I I was writing mine, it wasn't so much that no one has written on this before. It was more, this matters now than the realization that there wasn't a lot written about it in the discipline. And so then the sort of, I think the more doing it as kind of marking it as something, at least I guess, that I thought was important, this is um, provisional for sure, right? This is certainly my first time working through some of this in that initial article, but I think there's something here, right? In that sort of like opening to one's colleagues.
0: And yet undoubtedly, much of the implicit value underlying the propositions of an anthropology of something revolves around newness and novelty. And there are probably many reasons for that. We cannot overlook the fact that proposing an anthropology of something is a way to attract attention in a competitive academic marketplace that rewards novelty and innovation. But there are other forces at work, like my own desire to find intellectual community. I also recall reading in an article by Webb Keane that the project of anthropology was, quote, an epistemological critique of received categories. Something that struck me as both true and as a motor engine driving the push for originality, novelty, and newness. But as I learned from my interlocutors, this was not without its pitfalls. Alina Kim. You
4: know, I think that we're, we're almost um, weirdly bound to this idea of originality in our scholarship, it's funny, because if what we do is this epistemological critique of received categories then the then the creation of our of novel categories like rogue infrastructures in a way we've already um you know made it impossible to get overly attached to our own category because we're always you know expecting that they will be you know if not taken up in order to be deconstructed, then just kind of like not taken up at all. <laughs>
0: Nick Seaver brought up a related danger in declaring something new. Articles that go under the toward an anthropology of
6: X rubric, um, they risk being sort of plans for silo making, right? Uh, And I think that that could be a real problem. And that's why I think the framing of the question in the title of this this article, what should an anthropology of algorithms do, uh, it isn't okay, let's start a subfield called the anthropology of algorithms and carve ourselves out from things because I would find that to be like the least useful thing to do with what anthropology has to give me as a, as a sort of researcher and critic. Um, what I want is to tie algorithms in uh, to a sort of vast and diverse world of theoretical reference and resources. Uh, and so when I see uh, toward an anthropology of blank, I usually cringe a little bit because I always want to be like, that can just be anthropology.
0: That doesn't have to have a special modifier. In my conversation with Akil Gupta, it was clear that he'd been thinking about the new and the novel in a broader framework than just anthropology.
1: You know, the argument about novelty and newness um, is something that I've just uh, published or is in the process of being published, <laughs> an article on, <laughs> on maintenance in infrastructure. And that's precisely the argument I make is that in looking at infrastructures and thinking about infrastructures, there's a huge amount invested in the novelty and newness. This is the longest bridge ever built. This is the most complex real business, you know, and so forth. But then once it starts operating and people are riding the tram or doing whatever, then everybody loses interest in it. It's like, okay, it's just a normal thing that we do every day. And so the question I raise is an even larger question than the one you've raised about anthropology, which is a question about the role of novelty in modernity. And why is it that that which is novel, that's risky, that's uh, seen as imaginative in some way, or uh, gets the kind of attention and power and um, centrality in modernity? Uh, rather than maintenance, repair, reconstruction, you, you know, the routine as opposed to the novel, right? And I think I think it's a feature, I mean, of all domains of intellectual and cultural production. But the difference is this, that in the social sciences or in studying social phenomena, The the big difference is that, in fact, what we may be doing is underplaying, under-emphasizing those things that may not be novel, but may be sociologically or politically the most important things for us to be doing. Because we are chasing the novel and the new, we are actually not paying attention to that which, maybe well known well studied even whatever but which which really needs to be done right that's the that's the important political project and so there's in a sense in which um, academic work can sometimes be ahead of social transformation because it's chasing the novel etc. there's something that hasn't yet come up as a problem for example or whatever but chasing novelty as an end in itself, I feel, has uh, we have paid a very high price for that. And we would be, as a society, as a world system, a world order, be far better served by doing things better that we already know how to do <laughs> well, <laughs> instead of chasing things that <laughs> haven't yet happened.
0: So this could be seen as a version of long-standing and ongoing debates about the relative importance of continuity and change. And indeed, Tobias Race sees one of the greatest strengths of anthropology to lie in its ability, less to identify the new and novel, than grasp transformations as they are happening.
7: Different objects demand different kinds of questionings. And yeah. if, we wouldn't, if we would know what these questions are before we do research... Why would we do research? Uh, that exposure, like where you expose yourself with all your certainties, which is a very classical anthropological move, and you see which one falls apart, which ones fall apart. And and I think anthropology is better at this than any other of the disciplines I know. Sociology needs society. Anthropologists don't. They they, they just don't. They don't have the necessity of a prior ontological commitment. Um, And I think that's probably why anthropology, maybe together with STS, has pushed the experimental avant-garde of exposing the human and trying to think differently further than any other field one can imagine.
0: There was one more interesting commonality that became unavoidable as I read across all of the articles. And it's related to, but distinct from, the value placed in the discipline on originality and novelty. And that is a predilection for foregrounding the excessive, the unintentional, unpredictable, unexpected, unstable, and unforeseen, the volatile, aberrant, arbitrary, and unruly, the rogue, and the fugitive. Part of this predilection might be attributable to that skepticism of received categories, and of the common sense taken for granted aspects of human thought and action, or to the epistemologies of surprise, that Jane Guyer has discussed. But it's not only that. It reminds me of another argument made by Webb Keen, that an ethic underlying much anthropological practice and debate since the turn from positivism was, quote, to demonstrate some locus of human self-creation not reducible to external determinations, end quote. I asked each of my interlocutors about the status of this in their own work, and whether they think it is baked into proposing an anthropology of something. Elena Kim both recognized these qualities in herself and in anthropology, but said it raised some questions.
4: I'm completely guilty of reproducing this desire and search for the volatile, the excessive, the unanticipated, because it's exciting. But I also think that the value that we place on it should be critically examined more because we take it so for granted. And so when I am advising my students, I push them in that direction. Just the nature of reality means that it will yield something unexpected, (laughs) right? So there's that. Uh, But which one of those unexpected things makes us feel like that's worthy of attention, publication, thinking, you know, sharing.
0: For Kate Hennessy and Trudy Lynn Smith, it was precisely the volatile nature of the materiality of archived things that inspired their call for renewed reflexivity by anthropologists regarding their documentary practices. We hear first from Kate and then Trudy.
3: For us as um, visual anthropologists and um, Uh, you know artists anthropologists this kind of work compels us to really take seriously um, an investigation of our tools and how we create knowledge and how we um, make claims about the knowledge that we're creating and what it's meant to do and what the institutions that we take for granted as uh, stable and authoritative and reliable really are, and so for us, you know, going into the archive is an interesting place to start because it starts to undo a lot of the assumptions that we have about institutions like that as stable, as permanent.
2: And if I can just jump in there, also the anthropological project itself as imagining itself. So part of the anthropology of the multimodal is thinking about the anthropological project itself imagining itself as stable. So when you archive something like a film that you made, you imagine it stays forever. And the article we wrote is a lot about how that's simply not true.
0: As you might imagine from what he said earlier, Nick Seaver's Anthropology of Algorithms has been pushing against a strong determinist framework, one that exists both in the academic world, but also in public culture.
6: You also see nowadays, over the past few years, I suppose, a very dominant strain of popular critique of algorithmic systems that comes from inside of Silicon Valley, that comes from people who were themselves, you know, persuasive designers. Uh, There are organizations like the Center for Humane Technology. There's this documentary that just came out on Netflix. It's not really a documentary, um, but called The Social Dilemma, which entirely embraced this super determinist, you know, algorithms are getting into your brain. They work so well. And I think that we... Have set ourselves up for this sort of by endorsing a kind of determinist uh, line uh, that all the, all along had in it these kind of behaviorist premises, uh, and it's been hard, weirdly, for critics of algorithms, anthropologists, and otherwise, to ditch the behaviorist frame. Right to say, like, well, what's interesting about these isn't that finally technology has found a way to burrow directly into your head and make you do things. And I think it's a it's a Hannah Arendt line, right? That the problem with behaviorism isn't that it's true, but that it might become true uh, if we treat it in such a way or we organize our lives around it. Um, and I think that that's something that anthropology can bring to the table, which is a sort of non-behaviorist account of these technologies that work on behaviorist
0: premises. akio Gupta saw this interest in the excessive as a feature of many classic ethnographies and thus, in many ways, a part of anthropology for a very long time.
1: You see this right from the beginnings of anthropology. So, you know, go to his classic text by Malinowski and other people and there's tons of material in the text that he has no way of explaining. It's just there. (laughs) You know, he just presents you with kind of more or less... uh, Unedited field notes, you know, and he has no idea where this is leading or what it might, how you might theorize this. So, in a sense, I think anthropology depends on, has always depended on excess, and the the superfluous, the things that were thrown away in uh, in, a, in a effort to make everything conform to the logic of the argument and so forth. And that might have got thrown away. It's also about the importance given in the discipline to the contingent to the fact that the field can surprise you uh, in a way so that your best laid theoretical plans may not actually work out. And we've always also valued the counterintuitive in the discipline. So if economics tells us people behave this way, anthropologists go and find they actually don't. <laughs> and that's not how everyone behaves. So I think that in one way has made the discipline marginal to academic uh, institutions because the disciplines that are obviously most central are the ones that legitimize existing hierarchies. And we are always trying to unsettle those hierarchies. In some ways, we are self-marginalizing in a very project, in a very intellectual project. Um, but in other ways, it's also made it the discipline to which a lot of people turn when they want to find things that don't conform to what is already known.
0: Now, this point about finding things that don't conform to what is already known is the perfect place to bring in Tobias Race on this question of anthropology and its relationship to that which exceeds our explanatory frameworks. He begins with a distinction between the emergent and the actual.
7: When you speak about the emergent, that could mean that there is something new, still nascent, that is not yet stabilized. Um, and most people who do that actually want to identify what the new IT is. And if you get it right, you're the anthropologist of the IT. You're the IT boy or the IT girl, and that's very good for your career. Over time, I decided that I couldn't care less about the merchant. What interested me about what one usually called the merchant is what I would now call the actual. um, The moment when something is released from the way in which it is known, but it is not yet known again. And and that's the actual, right? The actual would be for me that moment when the old no longer works and whatever is nascent is just pure movement. It's noise. Everyone looks for the melody, but what if you actually would only care about the noise? And so when when I sometimes speak about poetics, it's not that I think I'm a poet. It's that the classical definition of the space of the poetic is the space of non-identity. It's the space of pure noise. that You cannot, and Deleuze and Guattari have this beautiful phrase, what are philosophical concepts? They are concepts that are always new, meaning you can never, if you succeed in building a philosophical concept, that's a concept that captures that which can never be captured. It remains chaos, it remains not reducible to something stable. There is always a more a surplus and and um, the kind of anthropology that we talked about, like this deanthropologizing. anthropologizing um, the goal there is not to say, okay, here is a list of all concepts that anthropology used, let's trash each one of them. No, the mm-hmm. goal is take them, take them with you into a field site about mushrooms, if you will, or about octopi or about cracks in ice, put them in the crack in the ice and see what happens. And incredible things can happen. And don't don't go and read more Foucault in order to theorize it. Follow the ice cracks, follow the methane bubbles, and the story of the world and of the human that they that they tell. Uh, and just take it as a as a poetic uh, for for that moment. This podcast
0: project on an anthropology of really began as a reflexive impulse, to follow my curiosity about a phrase that at least among anthropologists, myself included, is familiar, unremarkable, and part of common sense. I wanted to defamiliarize it somewhat, to ask what we mean by it and why we use it in some cases but not in others, and perhaps explore some of the edges of anthropological thought and practice today. One of those edges has clearly been shaped by science and technology studies, and attention to the materialities of things. But I could really only share a part of my exploration in this podcast. For example, one thing that shone through all of my conversations with the anthropologists featured here was how profoundly each one of these projects, each anthropology of, was embedded in extensive social and intellectual networks of mentors, colleagues, and collaborators. While this is something that many of us might intuitively expect, these social conditions of knowledge production remain barely detectable in the articles that are the most common form of anthropological discourse. It makes me wonder whether the same market forces and disciplinary values that prize novelty and originality encourage us to occlude these networks in our writing. In any case, getting to glimpse these networks came across as a refreshing aspect of this podcast project. Another shared interest across my conversations Was in how anthropology might engage publics and audiences beyond the academy and the confines of the professional discipline yet another related concern was with the gap between the world and the terms and theories with which anthropologists describe and explain the world now it's possible that these things did not come across strongly in this podcast so let me end with an invitation for further listening i've produced podcast episodes from each of my conversations and they can be located in the same place where you found this one. There you will be able to hear Carol McGranahan discuss the changing nature of scholarly obligation under Trump's presidency, and Alina Kim describe the risks that come with writing about landmines beyond the humanitarian register. You can hear more from Tobias Race about how his shift in thinking about what an anthropology of was and was for led him to reimagine anthropology in ways that triggered unexpected disciplinary defense mechanisms in others. You can learn what Akhil Gupta finds lamentable about academic publishing and what changes need to come to graduate training in anthropology, and hear from Nick Seaver about what it is like to do an anthropology of algorithms when a hostility to the algorithmic has been identified by scholars from Malinowski to Goertz as that against which anthropology defines what it has to offer the world. And from Trudy Lynn Smith and Kate Hennessy, you can hear about how their proposition for an anthropology of the multimodal emerged from experiments with research creation methods, the responsibilities of being a settler scholar in Canada, and the revelations of long-term collaboration. Post-production wizardry for this podcast was provided by Matthew Bailey, and the music is by Abstractor.